the Lord impressed me to speak about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the second great outpouring described as the latter rain, the main purpose of which is to ripen the grain for the harvest before Jesus comes. We must first look at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in the time of the Apostles to understand more about the Holy Spirit and the concept of rain. The Lord Jesus spoke of water as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now, falling water or rain represents the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, there were gifts given to people, gifts of tongues, gifts of prophecy, gifts of healing and many other things. But the main purpose was to preach the gospel, for which the individuals had to be prepared. And there's very much to learn from looking at what happened there at Pentecost, because it will help us to understand the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as the latter rain. There was to be, as prophesied even in the Old Testament, both an early and a latter rain, a former rain and a latter rain. Now when Peter stood up, he actually quoted from the Old Testament. But let us see some of these things. We read of the latter rain in the prophet Zechariah. That is the second last book in the Old Testament. Where he said, Ask the Lord for rain. In the time of the latter rain. Zechariah 10 verse 1. Before him, the prophet Joel had rejoiced. And that was in Joel 2, verses 23 and 24. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. You see, ripening it for the harvest. Let us now consider the main events on the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts the second chapter.
The disciples had waited for the Holy Spirit because Jesus had told them to do so. They spent time together. They had great personal needs. They searched their own souls and consciences. There were things to put right between themselves and their brothers and sisters. And they did so. And so, when the outpouring came, they were of one accord. Now, in that second chapter of Acts, we read how they were all together. Then there was a sound from heaven, like a thunderclap, I imagine, because it caused people round about to run and see what was happening. And then it was like a mighty rushing wind. Before rain falls, you sometimes have great wind. Suddenly they heard this rushing sound. And they saw tongues of fire descend upon each of them. And they spoke in foreign languages. They spoke in languages that they had never learned. That was amazing. The language spoken in Palestine, in Jerusalem, and in that small country of Palestine, now known as Israel also, I was there. It's really a small country. They spoke Aramaic. That was the language of Jesus and the apostles. The home language of Jesus was not Hebrew. The Jews had given up their language while they were back in the Babylonian captivity. So when they came back, they brought with them the Aramaic language which they spoke. They brought back the Aramaic script and even wrote the Hebrew scriptures. They copied them into Aramaic script. So when you see written Hebrew, it is Hebrew but written in an Aramaic script. So, those who lived in that area spoke Aramaic. But there were also other people in Jerusalem, Jews who did not speak Aramaic, some of them might have understood it, but these were sort of either visiting Jews coming for the festivals or let's call them immigrant Jews from the diaspora. And there they were and they spoke a lot of other languages. They were from Egypt, Libya, Mesopotamia, Persia, Crete. I visited Crete in 1985. Arabia, and even Rome, which was a long distance away. And to their amazement, they heard these Galileans speaking their language. Now, that was impossible. The Galileans also spoke their version of Aramaic. But here, they were speaking these other languages. 
those Jews who lived over there in Rome, well, their language, their own language was perhaps Latin. Many of them would have spoken Koine Greek, Koine meaning the common Greek. It had been spread after the conquests of Alexander the Great and the various kingdoms that had been built up by the generals of Alexander and so on. Koine Greek, it was like the English of the ancient world. Does everybody in the world know English? Does everybody understand English? How many people do you think in the world do not know English? Give me a percentage, give me a guess. What percentage of the world's population uh, does not understand or really understand any English? What population? Pardon? Between 80 and 90% don't know English. How many languages are there in the world? About 6,000. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church has worked in more than a thousand. Now some of them are spoken by small groups of people, admittedly. And sometimes if they spoke some language, they could understand one of the neighboring, more widely known languages, like Hindi, language, the official language of India, which is supposedly understood by more than a billion people, far more than the native speakers of English. And what about Chinese? The written Mandarin, written by all the dialect speakers of Chinese. Oh, a billion point three you know, 1,300 million people. And we are to reach them all in their own languages to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So we go back to Peter. They did not speak Koine Greek, but the languages of those people for the purpose of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we must be aware of the fact that we are not going to evangelize the work of the Lord and finish it with English language television. Not a chance. Literature is perhaps in the long run a better thing. But we cannot print in so many languages, because if you have small groups of people, it costs a lot of money to print books. That is why the Lord enabled people to invent the Kindle, the Nook, and other little reading machines, so that if text is produced, it can be read that way. And God pods and things like that. Now, Peter had to explain what this was all about. 
Some of the more ignorant people said, oh, they're drunk. <laughs> he said, well, it's only uh, very early in the morning, nine o'clock. They would not have had the chance to become intoxicated. He said, no. A wonderful thing is happening. The prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled. And so he quoted from Joel. And what we read in the New Testament is translated from the Greek of the New Testament. And the Greek of the New Testament often quoted from the Septuagint, a translation uh, from Hebrew into Greek made about 200 years or so before Christ. Now I'm going to read some of this from Joel, but I'm going straight to the Old Testament, which may read a little differently from what Peter said. All right. And we have this in Joel 2, verse 28 to 32. Joel 2, verse 28 to 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Your Bible may have a little different wording. I have been quoting from the New King James Version. Not all these prophecies were fulfilled at Pentecost. Only some of those things. There is a reason for some of this. Before Jesus ascended, the apostles had asked him, Lord, when will you be setting up your kingdom? And he told them, it is not for you to know the day or the hour, not for you to know it is in the hands of the Father. Why did he say that? Not only because the actual day and hour isn't known, he did not want them to know that many, many centuries would pass. It would have utterly discouraged them. Now that bit about the darkness and the moon being like blood, that was actually fulfilled in 1780 with a great dark day. I spoke about these prophecies yesterday. 
Now, there was a partial fulfillment. But there were gifts given. The early church did receive the gift of prophecy abundantly. The gift of tongues, the gift of healing, and other gifts. And Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, or verses 4 to 11, speaks of a large number of spiritual gifts, which would be imparted by the Holy Spirit. And he happened to speak out against the abuse of the gift of tongues. We can abuse the gifts of God. In addition to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we should exert common sense. All right? But let's look at the gift of prophecy in the early New Testament church. Before we go back to Peter, but let's just look afterwards in the New Testament. Many people had the gift of prophecy. I'll mention just a few. When the Christian church had started in, uh, uh, in Antioch, that's where they were first called Christians because they were always talking about Christ. A prophet by the name of Agabus came down from Jerusalem. Well, first... He predicted a great famine. And so it happened. Years later, the Apostle Paul, having finished his third missionary journey, was on his way to Jerusalem. He landed at Caesarea, the great seaport called Caesarea, named after Caesar. And he spent some time with Philip, who was called Philip the deacon, but by this time he was known as Philip the evangelist, a man rich in the Holy Spirit, a man to whom the Holy Spirit could speak and say, go down, there's a lonely road, and you see that man in the chariot, go to him. You remember that story? And then... Philip, after baptizing him, deacons could baptize in those days. After he had done this, he disappeared. The Lord transported him miraculously to another part of the country. And he was there in the area of Caesarea, and he did the Lord's work, and he was now living at Caesarea, and Paul was visiting him. Paul, on his way to Jerusalem, after the third missionary journey. And it says that Philip had four daughters, unmarried daughters, who prophesied. Are there any books written by any of the daughters of Philip? No, no. And we must distinguish between full-time professional prophets who write books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ellen G. White. Did Agabus leave a book? No. But he came down again from Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit had 
sent him to warn Paul, do not go up to Jerusalem. You're going to be grabbed by the Jews and you will be handed over to the Gentiles. By the way, don't you think that the Holy Spirit had warned Saul, don't go there? Oh, sure. But Saul was going. He had even said to the elders, was it at uh, Ephesus, there were those who came down, that they would not see his face again. But he loved the Christians in Jerusalem. He loved his people, the Jews. And he was going. So Agabus came there, used a girdle to bind himself. Don't go. Paul, and the other said, Paul, don't go. But Paul went. And you know the story how the Christians in Jerusalem had some stories and Saul had to go, as Paul, also known as Saul, had to go up to the temple because people were fulfilling a vow and the Jews saw him there. And he ended up in the hands of the Romans. You know that story. But there was the prophet Agabus. These prophets in the New Testament. So, the early New Testament church had lots of prophets. Some of them small-time prophets. Some of them big-time prophets. I have a question for you. Why is it that the remnant church has only one prophet? Ellen G. White. Or rather had one prophet because she died a hundred years ago. I think in 2015. Oh sure, we have her books written abundantly and we're so thankful. So does this mean that the remnant church has far less of the gift of prophecy? Now we should be honest and think of these questions and try to answer. That is, I, is what I will do, or try to. I want to suggest to you that spirit of prophecy is not a synonym for Ellen G. White. And that the manifestation of the spirit of prophecy among Seventh-day Adventists may have been much more abundant in the past and is still being manifested in our day, although it is not recognized as such. I want to give you an example of this. But first, point out that the Seventh-day Adventist Church did not like this idea of another prophet. Like other Protestants, they thought that after the closure of the canon of the New Testament, the gift of prophecy would cease. It didn't actually cease. It was greatly diminished because there was great apostasy of doctrine and things like that in the Christian church, and therefore uh, there was not so much of it. But do you know that Jan Hus the martyr, who was burned at Constance, was that in about 1415, 
something like that, that when he was imprisoned, he foretold that in a hundred years' time, somebody mightier than himself would arise. And he was a poor goose, hoose. That's what it meant. And they could burn him. But there would be somebody else, like an eagle. Somebody would preach these things much more powerfully. And there was a hundred years later. There was Martin Luther. So that, I think, was a manifestation of the gift of prophecy. But it was not abundant back in those years. Because the Holy Spirit is offended when people preach and believe false doctrines and he will take away from them manifestations of the Holy Spirit because otherwise people would say, oh, these must be the true church. Well, no, no, they, uh, they may have some truth, but they also believe wrong things. But now, what about other churches. Well, the Mormons have a prophet, always have a living prophet. By the way, I don't think he's very good at predicting the future. And the Roman Catholics have a living prophet. Did you know that? Pope Francis is a living prophet. Because when the Pope speaks in his official capacity, ex cathedra, he is infallible. It is the Holy Spirit that makes him like that. But of course, I am not sure that Francis can foretell the future. And I'm pretty sure that even Satan cannot foretell the future. He can guess at it. He's clever. He can work it out. But no human being, no satanic being, no intelligence can predict what will happen in five years' time. Beyond that, the variables are just too many. We don't know whether there is going to be a war between NATO and Putin. That's a bad thing that is shaping up there. Because they have nuclear weapons, you know. We don't know. But all prophets or all those with a prophetic gift, don't necessarily predict. We must make a distinction. A prophet speaks for God. And God can speak to people and reveal things to them. And this happens far more often in the Adventist church than we think. I want to give you an early instance of it. Back there in the 19th century, there was a young woman by the name of Annie Smith, the sister of Uriah Smith. One night, she had a dream. In her dream, she walked into an evangelistic tent. There was one empty chair, and just as she came in and she sat down, the evangelist rose up in front and he said, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. 
Now in that same night, when Annie Smith had her dream, Joseph Bates dreamt. And he dreamt the same dream with a little variation. He dreamt he was up there in front, ready to speak, and he saw a young woman come in and there was one empty chair. She sat down and he got up and he said, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Speaking from Daniel 8 verse 14. And she became a Seventh-day Adventist and wrote some sweet hymns. She did not live very long. Her brother Uriah Smith also became an Adventist and you know about Uriah Smith. Were they prophets? Were Annie Smith and Joseph Bates prophets? No. But was that a manifestation of the prophetic gift? I think so. And sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks to ministers and others who are going to address their, con their congregations. We should live so close to the Lord that he will be able to do that with us. And I want to give you an instance from my life. I told you the other day, by the way, that as I was writing my book, Christ and Antichrist, I heard a clear voice in my mind say, take your little calculator and see whether there really are 1260 literal days in three and a half calendar years. And I worked it out and you know, no, it was 1278.34 days more than, more 18 days more. So that has to be symbolic time. That cannot be literal time the way dis the dispensationalists say. I told you that, didn't I? And I told you maybe that on another occasion as I was writing my book, The Truth About 666 and the Story of the Great Apostasy, after Sabbath you can look at these things, I sat in the same place and I got another instruction in my mind. I was working on Vicarius Fili Day, and the instruction was, check. And also, see about this title in other languages. And I knew I had to look at it also in the translations. English, French, German, Spanish, Italian. Were there any more languages? Well, anyway, I read those languages, you know. So, I had Steve Emsian, it's one of my sorrows that he did not come, the man who helped me do so much research on the internet, and he checked and he found a lot, a lot of material which went into my book. So much material that at times my wife Rhea despaired. Please tell Stephen to stop. Now I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But sometimes the Lord speaks to me as he does to, I hope, a lot of you. But I want to tell you one other little story. 
Back in about 1972 or 73, I was the elder at the church in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. And I had to preach. It was a large church. But the whole week I struggled over the topic. I just couldn't settle on the topic. I didn't know what to preach about. But on the Friday evening, I said, well, let me take an old sermon. You see, I keep notes of the old sermons with a date and a place so that I won't repeat it to the same people. I thought, all right, that's it. That's what I'm going to preach about. But early on the Sabbath morning, I was woken by a voice telling me, the time of the end. Preach about the time of the end. And in addition to that, my mind was directed to the prophecies of Daniel. This was such an unusual experience. The Lord doesn't speak to me like that usually, you see. It was so unusual that I told the congregation about it, that I had originally planned on speaking about something else, but I'd got the instruction. And so I spoke about the time of the end, and I linked this with the prophecies of Daniel. After the sermon, as I stood at the door, greeting people as they left, a woman came to me and she said, that message was for me. Early this morning, my husband and I were talking about the need of studying the prophecies of Daniel. And so I said to her, I recommend the book Daniel and Revelation by Uriah Smith. And I was going to tell her how to get it. She was a non-Adventist. But then a smiling brother Andrews, a Carl Porter, came up and he said he'd get it for her. And it so happened that he had been giving Bible studies to this woman and her husband. I don't know what the sequel was, whether they accepted the message or not. They may have. But I'm just making a point that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, speaks to our people. And let's listen carefully to what he says. Sometimes he warns us of things and we don't listen. Sometimes he says things to us that don't seem to make complete sense. Now, you know, the devil can also tell us things, so be careful. But there is a juncture of the natural and the supernatural. Now we know about Agabus and Philip's daughters. But let's ask this question. So we had one full-time professional prophet, Ellen G. White, and I am very, very sure of her because we can look at specific things she wrote. We see that she predicted the American Civil War 
And the great earthquake of San Francisco early in the 20th century, that she predicted terrific warfare for the 20th century, ships, entire navies going down to the bottom of the sea, things like that had never happened before. But it did happen in the 20th century after she had died. She also predicted that the churches of the United States, the Protestant churches, would, re, would unite on the basis of the doctrines that they hold in common. Well, they are doing it. In some cases, literally. In some cases, well, they have united action. As a matter of fact, they are also uniting more and more ecumenically with the papacy. And she predicted that too, that the Protestants would reach out the hand to Rome and also to the spiritualists. There's no doubt about it. My brethren and sisters, Ellen G. White was a prophet of the Lord and more than a prophet. But spirit of prophecy is not simply a synonym for Ellen G. White. Because we are told in the book of Revelation that the remnant church would be characterized by keeping the commandments of God and having the faith of Jesus and also by the testimony of Jesus. We read that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, so there are other things too. Let me point out to you that Peter, when he wrote about prophecy, in 2 Peter 1, 19 and 20, he said this, we have the prophetic word confirmed, your Bible may say the more sure word of prophecy, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But now look, he wasn't only talking about the writing of prophecy, but also the interpretation of prophecy. Did you notice that? No prophecy is any private interpretation. Now, interpreting prophecy correctly. Being able to understand and explain the prophecies the way the Lord wants them to be explained requires the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, you know that most Protestant churches do not accept historicism anymore. They accept idealism, preterism, and futurism invented by Roman Catholic Jesuit scholars. Why? Because the more they apostatize from the truth of the Bible, from the true doctrines of the Bible, the more they reject 
the message that we bring them from God's word, the more the Lord takes away from them the ability as churches to interpret and understand the prophecies of the Bible. I am not saying that individuals of other churches cannot understand it when Seventh-day Adventists explain it. I'm not saying that. Because remember that in these other churches, they are children of God. Come out of her, my people, he says, you know. So that is another thing about prophecy, that the Holy Spirit is needed for the understanding of the prophecies of the Bible. And the reason, I think, while, why so many uh, uh, so-called progressive Seventh-day Adventists, liberals, whom I call regressive, do not understand the prophecies is for a similar reason. The Lord forgive me if I sound judgmental. We need the Spirit of God to guide us in understanding these things. Now, the question does arise, though, in spite of everything I've said, will our church have any more prophets? Well, of course, Protestants from the earliest days have not liked the idea of prophets. In Ellen White's time, many Adventists did not like Ellen White as a prophet. In our time, there are Seventh-day Adventists who say, don't use the spirit of prophecy when you speak from the pulpit. And there are men who say, well, maybe she was not a prophet. Maybe she was just inspired in a general way, uh, you know, in being able to preach and so on, but she was not really inspired by God in a special way. You know the talk. But when the latter rain is poured out, do you think there may be more prophets? I'm sure if any person or person should arise and say, hey, read what Ellen White wrote. She was a prophet of the Lord. Believe what she wrote. This would be greatly resented. And anybody who says, thus saith the Lord, well now, perhaps there will be a general conference committee and even the Ellen White statement said, no, 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 this can't be. Keep your minds open when the Holy Spirit is poured out more mightily. Now there was Peter to whom we must return at Pentecost. And what was he talking about? And what is this whole matter about talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit which we need personally and not only the gifts but above all salvation you know when Jesus 
uh, before Pentecost was staying somewhere in Jerusalem, a man by the name of Nicodemus came and visited him stealthily by night. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He couldn't afford letting uh, his colleagues in the Sanhedrin see that he's going to see Jesus. He came by night and he said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you must be from God because of the things that you teach and do. And the Lord, looking straight into his heart, said, said nothing about that. Forgot about the praise. He said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. The Greek original uses the word anothen. Very interesting. It says, anothen. Anothen. What is anothen? It could mean again, but it also means from above. The human being is not born from above. Through the Holy Spirit, he or she is not going to see the kingdom of heaven. Have to be born of water and of spirit. And this does lead us on to other things in the New Testament, what the Apostle Paul said. And this is like Going off the topic a little bit, but I will come back to it. I will come back to Peter at Pentecost. If you read Romans 7 and 8, you find the Apostle Paul speaking of the dilemma of human beings. Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am. You see, he could see he, with his mind, he wanted to serve the law of God, but with his flesh, his human nature, his sinful human nature, that's what flesh means in the New Testament. He could not keep the commandments of God. And then in Romans 8, verses 1 to 4, he tells of how it would be done. Because he thanked God through Jesus Christ who died for us. And he said, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh. That is human nature. You know, unregenerated human nature. But according to the Spirit for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You know, the inevitable thing. You will sin, you must sin, and therefore you must die an eternal death. But he frees us from that through Jesus Christ. How did he do that? How does God free us from that? God did. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That is very deep. And it's also extremely deep if you compare it with what Paul said in Ephesians, the second chapter, and in Colossians. And since I do not want to dwell on this now, I could preach a whole sermon on righteousness by faith. But I cannot dwell on that. I'm busy with a, a larger topic. But in Ephesians 2, you know that there is that verse that says that by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. And there the preachers stop. Wow, and how wrong. Because the next verse says, for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And if you go back to the beginning of Ephesians 2, you find again about the Lord sending his son, but about something else too. Somebody else who works, who causes people to be disobedient, the devil. The devil works in people. He stirs us up. We sin not just because of an inherited nature, because the prince of this world, the wicked one, he works in the children of disobedience. And alas, my brothers and sisters, if you allow the devil, he will work in you. But, thank God, he sent somebody much mightier than the devil to destroy the works of the devil, as the scripture says in another place. Therefore, as a gracious gift, an unmerited gift, he saves us. While we were still sinners, he loved us. And so, we saved us through grace. And we must believe, not through works, not through erga, ta erga, the works, what works, not through the works of our human nature, all right, but through Jesus Christ. But then, also, for you, ergatea, you are his working, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And in that way, the righteous requirement of the law, because the law is good and righteous, can be fulfilled. In those who work, walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. But this goes further. We must share our experience with those who are around us 
Every human being that you see walk past you along the sidewalk or whom you see at the till next to you in Walmart is somebody for whom the Lord Jesus died. You are to love that person. And somehow, through what you say or do, your example, you must draw them. Now, what was Peter's main burden there at Pentecost? We're back to Peter. Peter first explained about the Holy Spirit. He spoke about the gifts. He spoke uh, about Joel, and he quoted from Joel. And then he plunged headlong into the main burden of his message. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he told them, and you can read it, you murdered the Messiah. Come now. Del Carnegie wrote a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You must not be confrontational. Have a nice way about you. Get into it gently. But the Holy Spirit caused him to say, You murdered the Messiah. You can read that for yourself. He said, he said, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, works, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And in our time, we will, have, we will also be urged by the Holy Spirit and say, don't go along with the papacy. Don't make these Sunday laws or you will be punished most horribly in hell. As I said to you yesterday, not a nice message, very confrontational. But the purpose is not just confrontation. When he had spoken about this, he said, God raised him up. He couldn't be held by the bonds of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And he referred to King David, who prophesied about Jesus and he said, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. He's alive, and see what he has done. We have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And he said a few more words. Then he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, 
both Lord and Christ. Christ means Messiah. Messiah. And so he stopped now. And he waited for their reaction. And it says, this is Acts 2, 37 to 39. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, so that your sin in murdering the Messiah can be forgiven, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we read that how many people were baptized on that day? How many of those people accepted the message? 3,000. And afterwards, as the apostles went on with their work, more and more were added. Wonderful. There's something else that happened, though. What was the reaction of the Sanhedrin? What was the reaction of those who did not accept that message? They were furious. And they did their best to destroy these apostles. And there was a great persecution. You'll remember about Stephen and all that. Let us not expect that when we do a mighty work for God, or rather God does a mighty work through us, that there is no price to be paid. There is. There is persecution. The devil hates us. He hates these messages. He's afraid. He doesn't want the Lord to come soon because some horrible things will happen to him and his evil crew. He'll put it off as long as he possibly can. And he'll work out there to persecute, to harass, to kill. And he will work within to subvert. Won't he now? But there will be glorious results if we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us. Now that was the early reign which is a pattern for the latter rain. Let's look at just a few things concerning the latter rain. And I want to refer you to what Sister White said. If you go to the internet, there's a beautiful compilation called The Former and the Latter Rain by E.G. White. Believe it or not. It's there on the internet. The former and the latter reign by E.G. White. Download it because somebody may take it off sometime or other. And she makes it plain that it is necessary for us to have the former reign before we can have the latter reign. And she said, this is in testimonies to ministers. 506 to 509, many have in a great measure failed to receive the former reign. So many people in the Seventh-day Adventist Church have never experienced 
the former rain. They have not been regenerated. And they have not obtained all the benefits that God has thus provided for them. They expect that the lack will be supplied by the latter rain, when the richest abundance of grace will be bestowed. They intend to open their hearts to receive it. Oh yes? Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. Almost thou persuadest me to receive the Holy Spirit. But the work that God has begun in the human heart, how she says, they are making a terrible mistake. The work that God had begun in the human heart in giving his light and knowledge must be continually going forward. Every individual must realize his own necessity. Their heart must be emptied of every defilement and cleansed for the indwelling of the Spirit. And she says also, as we seek God for the Holy Spirit, it will work in us meekness, humbleness of mind, a conscious dependence upon God for the perfecting latter rain. If we pray for the blessing in faith, we shall receive it as God has promised. There's an illustration of the need of receiving the Holy Spirit also in the book of Acts. You will read in Acts 19, verses 1 to 6, when Apollos was at Corinth, Paul was passing through Ephesus. And he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they told him, Well, we've not even heard that there is anything like the Holy Spirit. So he asked him further, well now, with what baptism were you uh, baptized? With that of John, that's John the Baptist. He said, yes, John did the work of God preparing for Christ. Uh, but uh, there's more to come. And when they heard that, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, I'm sure they were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but specifically, with an emphasis on the Jesus whom they had not properly acknowledged. But then something happened. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, these tongues were quite a sign in those days, and prophecy. I want to ask you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? Did your ministers say anything about it? And if there are ministers here, have you spoken to people about receiving the Holy Spirit after they're baptized? Have you perhaps laid hands on them that they will receive the Holy Spirit? Are we not missing out on some things. So we must receive the Holy Spirit as former rain, give us victory in our lives, to help us put away certain things, 
to start working on the gospel, preaching the gospel, because each of us in the purposes of God is to be an evangelist in one way or the other. Each of us, the early Christians were, you know. That is why Christianity spread so fast. Here are two more quotations from Sister White, and they are tantalizing statements. We find in Great Controversy 6.11 to 6.12, the great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God than marked its opening. The prophecies which were fulfilled in the outpouring of the former reign at the opening of the gospel are again to be fulfilled in the latter reign of its close, at its close. Here are the times of refreshing to which the Apostle Peter looked forward when he said, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus. And then she said also, the work will be similar to that of the day of Pentecost. And then further, and you will find what I'm going to read to you now in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, E.G. White comments on Acts 2, verses 1 to 4. She said, It is with earnest longing that I look forward to the time when the events of the day of Pentecost shall be repeated with even greater power than on that occasion. John says, I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lighted with his glory. Then, as at the Pentecostal season, the people will hear the truth spoken to them, every man in his own tongue. Wow. Does this mean that this church is destined to have the real, genuine gift of tongues again? You make up your own mind. Read these things. Get them from the internet. But she said so. She implies so, doesn't she? Thousands of voices will be imbued with the power to speak forth the wonderful truths of God's word. The stammering tongue will be unloosed and the timid will be made strong to bear courageous testimony to the truth. May the Lord help his people to cleanse the soul temple from every defilement and to maintain such a close connection with him that they may be partakers of the latter rain when it should be poured out. And the latter rain is to ripen the harvest, to finish the work of God. That mighty angel of Revelation 18, which comes down from heaven, which is commissioned from heaven itself, that is supposed to be you and me, my brothers and sisters, as we shall be. So, that is what will happen at Second Pentecost. And it is to finish the Lord's work. It's for the ripening of the grain. 
and there will be persecution as the Sanhedrin persecuted the apostles. The Sanhedrin, scribes, and the Pharisees, the leaders and others who did not accept the message. We will be persecuted. Eventually there will even be a death decree. That lies ahead. And masses of us will go out and join the enemy. And masses of those in the other churches will come in and be here. And the very nature of the remnant will be reconstructed. All the children of God. Let me ask you though, my brethren and sisters, have you received the early rain? If not, please talk to the Lord about it. You need his enabling power, you need cleansing, you need the gifts, whatever gifts he wants to give you. Pray also earnestly for the latter rain, because you need to help to proclaim the Lord's work and the finishing of the gospel. In my first lecture, I referred to a song. The Lord is coming. Are you ready? And Dr. Leroy Latach on that wonderful bass voice, who has long since not been with us, back in South Africa, sang it. And he changed the last verse and he said, The Lord is ready. Are you coming? God bless you richly. Let us bow our heads. Our Lord and Father, we want to be ready when Jesus comes. But we want to be what you want us to be. You have a great work to do. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, has a great work to do in us and through us. May this be so. In Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.